0: You're listening to a message delivered at First Family Church from the series While We Wait, exhortations from 2 Thessalonians. For more information and messages, visit our website at firstfamily.church. A picture this in your mind, would you? The gospel, via gospel messengers, lands in a town. It could be Thessalonica, in the mid-first century, when Paul went with his team and brought the gospel, it could possibly be another town in the Middle Ages. It could be something recently, like Central Asia. It could be something a few years ago, like bonduran It could have been in Ankeny years ago. Just think of a town in which the gospel came through gospel messengers and landed, and people... Heard the gospel, responded, believed the truth about Jesus, were saved, and began to obey everything that Jesus taught them. Now that's just the Great Commission, by the way, all right, Matthew 28, that's all that is in story form, so to speak. Now think about those very same people who heard the gospel, believed it, began to obey everything Jesus said, regardless of what town that is or was in the globe. Think about those people, and then year one, year two, year five, year eight, they're still obeying. Now think about that, because typically we think about all those folks who sometimes just don't stick with it. They quit obeying. But no, think about instead the folks who are continuing to obey. Year 10, year 12, those gospel messengers have left. Those church planters have moved on. Perhaps the pastor there has died. Maybe it's year 25. Maybe it's, we're into the third decade, but there are still some people obeying everything Jesus said. What makes that happen? Let's answer that question this morning, can we? Two verses in Second Thessalonians that i believe help us understand how the mission of god in the people of god continues year after year decade after decade we have the answer to that question in two verses verses 4 and 5 of this five verse set in second thessalonians 3 I want to read all five verses, can we? Because again, it kind of gives us a sense of the context. We've been in this, these five verses now. This will be our third week in these. But I think the context will help us understand the, the two verses we'll see more intensely in a little bit. All right. Here's the context. Let's read. Uh, you follow along with me. Verse 1. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. Now, that's that that that. that that's kind of like that story I just told you. The, the gospel goes to a town, lands, people get saved, and they begin to obey. He's saying, pray that that would happen. And that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith, but guess what? Say it with me. The Lord is faithful. Love that phrase, don't you? So even if wicked men have their way with God's messengers, they will not have their way with God. He's faithful. And he will help the people who have believed, the people among whom the word of God ran and had free course, who believed and began to obey, he will make sure they keep obeying. That's why it says the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. So in this establishing and guarding, what happens? Verse 4, and so we have this confidence in the Lord about you. Same you as mentioned in verse 3. The you in which Paul says, God will establish you and guard you. Yes, these very yous. <laughs> he says, we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing. There's that obedience and will do. There's that continued obedience. The things that we command. And don't think Paul here is being some you know, misogynistic dictator. Like, if I command you. Paul's just saying, he's passing on God's authoritative word. We have no authority inherently as pastors. You know that? We only have authority as God's word has authority. But when God's word has authority on all of us, guess what? It has authority. Christ is not a consultant. And he did not give suggestions. So when Paul says, we want you to keep doing the things that we command you. He's saying what God gave us and told us, yes, yes. Let's keep doing that. It's not optional or negotiable. And he says that he has confidence they will do that. So he's very persuaded is the word there. He's trusting, another good word there for confidence, that they will do what God says and will continue to do that. Which is why he prays in the last verse of this specific text that the Lord would direct their hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. What I believe is happening here is this prayer request, this um, desire that that the Lord would direct the hearts of the Thessalonian believers to these two things is the way verse 4 happens. How does someone obey in the moment and continue to do that? It's when God directs their hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. This is why he prayed this prayer. So that they precisely would obey now and keep obeying. So let's examine a couple of things from this verse briefly. I'll make several applications after a brief examination. Then we'll take some questions. I think this will appropriately lead us into communion as we see these two things kind of highlighted: the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ as the real means for immediate and continued obedience. I think we have two themes kind of um, flashed on the screen for us. The first one's obedience in verse four. It's not hard to recognize that, is it? You've got a Bible there, whether it's you know it's a digital or hard copy. You can see verse four. You just say, "Hey, I want you to obey now." want you to obey later, I would say that two things stand out in this verse, that there is a sense of confidence about Paul's um, command or Paul's uh, desire for them to obey. It's like, hey, we're we're, we're persuaded, we're trusting that you're going to do this. And not only in the moment, but he's saying, man, we're confident you're going to keep doing this. Isn't Isn't that a good sense that you get from Paul? That while he's not like dogging his people, He's not writing this scolding letter. And Paul's been known to have some rough edges at times, hasn't he? But here he said, guys, we just, we just, we know, we know that you're going to obey and that you're going to keep obeying. It's an encouraging remark about their obedience. And so I think what Paul is expecting here, and consequently, listen very carefully, church, expecting of us as well, the 21st century church, reading the first century church. What, what Paul's expecting is the same thing. Confident obedience in the moment and continued obedience in the days ahead. That believers who heard the gospel in a town and believed it, even if the messengers were to leave, die, get hurt, move away, the people still obey. Amen? That's all he's asking for. This is not, you know... Um, Brain surgery here. This is practical shoe leather theology. God wants obedience now and in the future. I don't think that's really where we struggle. Would you smile and nod at that? If I came to you and said, Emily, do you think God wants you to obey? She'd do what she's doing now. You see Emily over here? She'd smile and nod. You you embarrassed yet? (laughs) She's not. Because no one's going to say, whether it's on this side of the room or Sylvia here, you're not going to say, I'm thinking about this obedience thing, Todd. I'm just not sure that's really what God's heartbeat." Like, uh, we've got to talk about something deeper, right? The question is, well, how does one do that? And I don't know if your question really is obeying in the moment. Did you know that? As I thought about this, I don't think the question is, yeah, I'll obey now. Because a lot of folks make New Year's resolutions. Um, Sometimes around your birthday or maybe an anniversary, or just when the Holy Spirit convicts you, you're like, man, I got to get back in into, into the groove of doing the right thing. And it could be a number of things, but then you kind of make tracks quickly. A lot of folks obey in the moment, and that's good. The real question is can I obey over the long haul? That's why Paul says next two things about motivation. See, I think verse four deals with obedience. Of which no one here would probably have an issue. But we would all say, man, Todd, it's verse 5 where I, where I struggle. Not that you disagree with it. But the long-haul obedience. How does that happen? Because sometimes, Todd, we just get tired. I feel like my motivation runs low if not out. How, does, how do you keep on keeping on when life just throws curveballs and screwballs and fastballs? man. When you're hit by a pitch. (laughs) That's why verse 5, in talking about motivation, I love this verse. He says, may the Lord. So here's the source. Here's where motivation begins. Direct your hearts. So it's an internal issue. To the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. I would say two things about motivation that all of us should get a handle on. Motivation is internal and it is divine. Now I'm talking about motivation to obey over the long haul God's commands, all right? I'm not talking about motivation for like a game you're going to play or a church basketball league or maybe something. That's not what I'm talking about, okay? I'm talking about motivation on what matters. <laughs> Living your life with an eternal perspective for kingdom values for more than a week or a month. But year after year, decade after decade, so people watching your kids see, man, this is the kind of life that just is solid. It's on a foundation. It doesn't budge or move. It's not unstable. It's like consistent. That's what I'm talking about. He says the motivation for that kind of life, for doing and continuing to do, is when our hearts are directed by God to two things. God's love and Christ's steadfastness. This entire verse is very internal. It's very supernatural. It's very divine. There's no white knuckling here. There's no team meetings with a rah, rah, rah. It's a prayer by Paul for one thing, that that God would go deep inside you and steer your energies, your time, your focus. He would steer your vision to his love and Christ's steadfastness. And then when that happens... I believe the answer to that prayer is verse 4. You will do what God commands, and you will keep on doing it. Let's talk more about those two things for a moment, can we? The love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. This is that to which Paul says here, he was hoping and praying the Lord would direct their hearts. The word direct there means to steer, to navigate. Paul used it in the first Thessalonian epistle to describe his physical route, by the way. He said, we pray the Lord will direct our way to you. I think it's chapter 3, verse 11. So it's used, actually, to describe uh, physical navigation. To remove a hindrance and say, we're going to help you get from point A to point B. Here he uses it kind of metaphorically to describe a spiritual navigation. And it's not done by man, it's done by God. God would remove obstacles and hindrances and point us, steer us, direct us to his love, The word there is agape. It means sacrificial. So our heart should be steered towards God's love and then Christ steadfast. The word there means to remain under something. It's mene. I think what's in play here are just really two, you may call them principles, concepts, but that God would love us sacrificially and then consequently send his son to die for us. I mean, this is the, the, the simplest, most succinct understanding of the gospel, isn't it? And what is Paul asking for? That God would steer and navigate our hearts to the that. As the means for immediate and continued obedience. The first people that need to hear this are pastors. Because <laughs> you know what we do? We, we, we usually try to make sure people obey based on checklists and guilt and volume of voice or emotion of moment. I've fallen prey to that at times. I pray to God, help me not to lead our people with guilt. I don't want to do that. But can I just be really transparent with you that sometimes when you get frustrated, you you get the long pull out. You start cranking on people. How do I know that? Because you've done it with your kids. You don't want to lead with guilt as a parent, but aren't there times you're like, you know what, I've had it, you're going to do what I said, and if you don't, I'm going to, you're cranking on them, right? So, as you think about this concept, and this is not a preach-at-you moment, pastors, and we've got some in the room, this is how we should pray for our people. That God would so overwhelm them with his sacrificial, undeserved love and the subsequent sacrifice of Christ on the cross for them. That obedience... Would, would naturally flow now and for years to come. Not because, well, that's what the pastor said to do. That's what the elders said we should do. That's what my light house said. No, because this is what God does in my heart. And for a God who loved me and gave himself for me, obedience is a natural, overflowing response. Now, the implication of this Is stark. And I think some of you are probably already ahead of me. You know what I'm going to say here. You know the implication. Those who aren't obeying long term, their hearts aren't directed, steered, focused on the gospel. It's the obvious, maybe negative implication. And we may have a thousand reasons why. But when there is disobedience, when there is a disconnect to God's commands, I would say it's biblically safe to say there's a heart issue and they're tapping into things that do not sustain over the long haul. Like guilt. Maybe like the wrong kind of incentives. Maybe like fear of man or praise of men. Maybe like money. You can list a number of things here. All of those things will fail uh, long term. They will not sustain God's children. Like a heart, an inner life that's directed, focused, steered, navigated towards God's sacrificial agape type love. And the proof of it in the steadfastness of Christ. Why does he say steadfastness? Because I think in this simple phrase, he's giving us an example of someone who obeyed long term. Christ came, obeyed, did the will of the Father. John makes this very clear in his uh, gospel. But Christ didn't just quit, uh, excuse me, Christ didn't just obey when it was easy. When he set his face towards Jerusalem he continued to obey. When he was tempted the top of the temple the different places in his wilderness wanderings he was tempted in those days of fasting he continued to obey. Even in the garden when he prayed this prayer that I think theologically we can wrestle with for decades. Father not my will but yours be done. When he prayed that prayer what did Jesus do? He steadfastly obeyed so what we have here is a call to action that's rooted in an inner motivation provided by god and an example of christ so let's give an answer to the question can we how do people obey long term let's go back to that story we told the folks in the town, year 10, 12, 15, 25, what, what's happening that they would still be obeyed? Their hearts are directed to God's love and Christ's steadfastness. So when the messengers leave, when one or two or more is a martyr, when the church is shut down, or when things happen, the motivation that is divine and internal carries them and they have confident and continued obedience year after year. Now, let me just pause here and share an opinion on something. Can I do that? I've been asking myself this question this week. Could it be that the love of God, mentioned first in verse 5, look with me now, is actually referencing the immediate obedience in verse 4? Do you see that? He says, we have confidence, we're persuaded that you will do. It's a present active indicative there. You will obey. Could it be that the love of God is what prompts initial obedience? Obedience, And could it be that the steadfastness of Christ is what prompts and kind of motivates the continued obedience? Now, I don't know that I can make this connection dogmatically. Here's why I ask you this, though. Several scriptures have run through my mind this week. For instance, here's one, 2 Corinthians 5.14. Jot this reference down, would you? 2 Corinthians 5.14, Paul is speaking about his new relationship with Christ in regards to the Corinthians and their status. And he says... For the love of Christ compels us. The word is sometimes translated constrained. It means to have such a tight grip on something that you can do nothing else. So, Paul's language in the Second Corinthians passage, and this one seems to say that, that God's love is the engine for that obedience in the moment. Like, immediate, like man... I can do nothing else but obey. You know what I'm saying? So I thought maybe God's love compels obedience. And then Christ's example, or as listed here, Christ's steadfastness propels it or continues it. I'm just asking the question. Here's why Hebrews 12 too. The writer of that book, which I tend to think is Paul. He asks us to fix our eyes on Jesus. The idea of fixing means... Don't just run a quick race. Do something long-term. Stay in the race, right? And then he says, so, so look at Jesus. Consider him. Fix your eyes on him. And then he talks about the cross. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. So I, I just got to thinking. I wonder if maybe in Paul's mind he knows that the, the best motivation to starting obedience is God's love. And the best motivation for continuing obedience is Christ's example. Now, I wouldn't preach that to you as like, that's exactly what he means. I don't know. But I just want to kind of throw that out to you. A little, maybe a little more deeper connections. Maybe it is. Maybe Paul's saying God's love will handle the doing in the moment and Christ's example will handle the doing in the future. Regardless, we see that the motivation for all obedience comes from the Lord. It starts inside and then it works its way out isn't this so backwards from our culture most of our jobs most of our encounters they start motivation on the outside and they squeeze us to conform and so hoping that we will then you know get to work and measure up but god this is the opposite he doesn't try to conform us he transforms us romans 12 2 he comes inside does an incredible work And your natural, I should say, the supernatural, Holy Spirit-driven response, then is like, anything you say, God, like whatever the question is, consider the answer yes. That's the child of God, motivated to obedience because their heart has been navigated to God's love and Christ's steadfastness. I don't think this is hard to understand. Is it it pretty plain this morning? Is this just kind of understandable? I hope so. Before I give you some applications, let me just simply say that regardless of how these words all connect, the point here is that this motivation is not something we work up. It is something he works in. Can you say this with me? Motivation is not something we work up. It's something he works in. Which leads me to our take-home truth today. That long obedience, and that's just a word for confident and continued obedience. Okay, that's all we're saying there. It's just kind of a shorter way to say it. But let's make no apologies for this. This is exactly what your elders are looking for. This is what God is looking for. Long obedience, okay? It's great that you're obeying now. And we believe the best about you, but what we're looking for, what God's wanting is long obedience, okay? That year after year, decade after decade, you're following after the Lord. It's yes to whatever He says. So long obedience in the same direction is inwardly motivated by both God's love towards us, it's sacrificial, (coughs) unconditional, and then Christ's perseverance for us, his example of continuing to obey over the entire course. In fact, will you say this with me? You've probably written it down by now, right? Or had a snapshot of it at least, right? Let's say it together, can we? Long obedience in the same direction is inwardly motivated by both God's love towards us and Christ's perseverance for us. This is really the take-home truth of these two verses. This answers the question... How does a community, a family, a person, what, how do those people obey so many years after the gospel came and landed like the folks in Thessalonica? It's because God steered their heart to his love in Christ's steadfastness. Now, a couple of applications, actually five applications for you before I take some questions. Strong suggestions. Uh, these might be called windows into our daily life of ways this makes a difference, all right? First of all, no, your leaders are pulling for you, all right? I admit that sometimes obedience is very difficult, and especially in the realms in which you feel like, man, I'm not sure if I've, I've, I've got it in me to do this. Do you have people in your corner, okay? I would say definitively, you have your lighthouse leader in your corner. I would say definitively, you have our elders and deacons and staff in your corner. And I would hope you have your spouse in your corner or your parents in your corner if you're in a child home still. So when the devil says to you, man, you're the only dude trying this, man. Just say, yeah, you're a liar. You've lied from the beginning. That's false. I've got a lot of folks pulling for me. You're not alone in your race to obey, so to speak, in the marathon of obedience. It may be about giving. You're like, man, it's it's tight this month. I just want to obey. Bad idea. Obey like a lot of other people who have tight months are continuing to obey. We're in your corner. Amen? Attending church, prioritizing your involvement, serving the body, being kind and witnessing and being an influence, raising your children, discipline them correctly. Would anybody here admit that gets long? I knew that'd get some laughs, some groans. Mm. Like you ever thought, man, I, I think I need a, about a five-year break because I'm worn out, you know? And you're only three. You know? <laughs> okay. I mean, I've been there, okay? You're not alone. I, I want you to know. Look, look, everybody look around the room. Look around, just look, let your head on a swivel and look around the room. I know most of you here, and from what you've confessed, unless you're just lying, most of you here have confessed Christ. You're a believer of the gospel. You're wanting to obey, so you are at least for an hour and a half every Sunday morning surrounded by people who want to obey. We're pulling for you. Don't quit, all right? If you need to hear that more, maybe go back and rewind this, or watch the video, or come see us after the service. Your elders are here. There's ladies here. There's a prayer team here. And if you just say, you know, man, I've just been tempted to quit. We'll just pray with you. We'll just let you know we're pulling for you. And this is not that we think you're awesome or that we think we're awesome. We're saying, hey, God is awesome. You don't have to quit. We're just going to magnify God together. We'll pray. We'll cheer you on. We're pulling for you, okay? One of the worst habits you can get into is to be late to church and early to leave. Ouch. Is it difficult with kids? You know what it is. And I don't know that personally. I had to be early. But my wife knows. Four kids below 10, and I was never home on Sunday mornings to help. So if you're thinking, well, he doesn't understand. I don't, but my wife knows. And one of the worst things you could do is be late because you miss a lot of the encouragement. Am I speaking plainly to you here for a minute? You rush in, you check your kids in, run in. And and, and so then we've already started and folks are not going to talk to you then. Then i got to get home and the game or lunch or something. So you run out and and you go that week after week and suddenly you've not had just simple encouragement of folks who are pulling for you. Sometimes those very people are hesitant about a lighthouse and what you find is this, you're going to have someone who just kind of checks off that they came to a church building for a few minutes and they feel better about themselves, but they're lonely, they're disengaged, they're even disobedient. Can I just give you some very simple, plain, I think, advice that just works? Get to church early, talk to people, and try to stay a little later. You might find just in that encouragement, you'd have motivation from God to keep on obeying. I hope I wasn't too plainly honest with you. We're pulling for you, all right? Second application I would say to you is this. I need a prompt from Jill here. <laughs> Realize the longest lasting motivation, which I call this week Duracell obedience. Duracell's is the longer lasting battery, you know? That's so all we got. I'm thinking, man, I want Duracell obedience. That's what I want. I'm going to buy Cell batteries from now, Okay. So realize the longest lasting motivation is inward. It's gospel-centered, steering by God, not guilt-driven, driving by man. I know that's a repetition of words. Sorry, Steve Cooper. But it's it's not guilt-driven, driving by man. It's God uh, steering us through the gospel. And so because this is true, because this is the longest lasting motivation and it's inward, listen very carefully, give attention to the hidden why issues of your heart. Ask yourself on a regular basis in front of the mirror. So why am I doing this? And then stay long enough to hear your answer. (laughs) All right? If you find that that answer is scary, like, whoa, I just said that I'm doing that because my wife is making me, then the next conversation is with your wife. Say, honey, can we talk about something? uh, and I, I need some adjustments, and I need a correction, and, and God can give this. I've been doing it because you, and, and just have that conversation. I'm not saying quit doing what you're doing. I'm saying let's adjust the motivation. Let's recalibrate. Recalibration doesn't occur if we never take time to ask difficult questions. Why do I do what I do? And my goal here is not to say, well, if I'm not doing it for the right reason, I'm going to quit. I think, I think that's unhealthy. It's far better to recalibrate and say, I'm going to get in line with what God says, that he will steer my heart towards his love and Christ's example. That's why I want to obey now, and that's why I want to keep on obeying. That's gospel-centered steering. It's divine. It's internal. That's the longest-lasting motivation. Third application. This helps the second, the second application happen. Think about God's love as often as you can, especially the kind of love it is. So let's say you're saying to yourself, well, I don't think I feel that great about my motivations. I've asked some hard questions. What do I do with that? I think this is a great first step. Think, or you could use the word meditate, about God's love as often as you can, especially the kind of love it is. In fact, we're told in Scripture, and you see it on your Scripture sheet. Chris developed this for us this week. Several verses in which uh, we see references to God's love. I want you to take this sheet and just read through these verses on a regular basis. You can mark ones that you think are your favorite. That's fine. But it's the kind of love that is steadfast. In the Old Testament, the word is hesed. In the New Testament, it's more like Agape but it means a continued, sacrificial, steadfast, covenantal love that God has for us. Here's why this kind of meditation and thinking is effective. Because most of us are geared toward obeying when people approve of us and and we perform well and like, okay, so I got an applause. But you know that God, let me see if I can say this well. God doesn't just love you because of who you are. God actually loves you in spite of who you are. I'm not trying to be crass. I'm just trying to elevate the kind of love God has for you. It is different than any other love known to man. Which is why John would write, Behold, what kind of love the Father has given us that we would be called the sons of God. Wow. So, if you want to move towards right motivations that are uh, steered by God long-term and internal, start by focusing on the kind of love God has for you. And this will take months, maybe longer. When I was a youth pastor in Georgia, I recall having some sincere motivation issues at times. And so I developed not only some verses that I would memorize, but I developed a playlist. This is before Spotify and those ones that make it really easy. I had to kind of like copy songs to some kind of instrument you could play in the car. I think it's kind of square, called a cassette or something like that, you know. (laughs) But every day in my cassette player, I would just play these songs. And by the way, they were of all styles. I like guitars a bunch. I love a cappella music. So I, I like a lot of different styles. And so these songs were from all different styles, but they were very theologically accurate and rich, and they helped me develop a way of thinking that was gospel-centered. It really really changed some things in my heart. In fact, I have some lyrics here that I thought we would just kind of sing together. I don't know if you know all these songs. These are ones that I have used on that playlist for years. Do you know this song? The love of God is greater far. Than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star. And reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled. And pardoned from his sin the chorus goes like this. Oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure, the saints and angels' song. You may have known that. I'm not the best singer, but I love that song, don't you? It's a great acapella song. In the shower, in the car. (laughs) Oh, love of God, sing it out, you know. Because you need to think about God's love as much as you can, especially the kind of love He has for us. There is a beautiful, terrible cross where, though you committed no sin, Savior, you suffered the most wicked fate on the cruelest creation of men. This is from Selah. It's called the most, it's called the beautiful, terrible cross. Yet on that beautiful, terrible cross, you did what only you could. Turning that dark inspired evil of hell into our soul's greatest good. We see the love that you showed us. We see the life that you lost. We bow in wonder and praise you for the beautiful, terrible cross. It's a good song, by the way. Google it. Find it, buy it. Here's probably one of my favorites. We've sung this here. You know this. In fact, you want to sing with this when you can. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure. That he should give his only son. To make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss the Father turns His face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Here's the last course. Why should I gain from His reward? See, that's the kind of love God has for us. It leaves us with that question, why do I gain from this? All I brought was a, was a wardrobe of filthy rags. And God dressed me in robes of righteousness? So why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. So we're left speechless before God that he would show us this kind of love. But this I know with all my heart. <laughs> His wounds have paid my rent. Amen. You think about that on a regular basis through scripture, through song. Over a period of months, your heart will change. And you will find obedience being a natural outflow in the moment and in the future. Fourth application. Consider sacrifice the joyful norm as a follower of Jesus. Let me just briefly say this to you. I tend to think when difficulties arise or when there's a lot asked of us, that's when our obedience begins to lag. It's, it's somewhat easy when things are going well. When a church is planted in the first two years, you've got a bunch of pioneers on board. You've got a new baby at home, let's say, and you're a new dad or mom. Yeah, but you know the first sleepless night. The fifteenth sleepless night, or the terrible twos, the terrible threes, or the terrible four. <laughs> you know. Then you get in the fifth year of the church plant and everyone's like, Oh man, this is great. And and where where's everybody going? Why aren't we still serving? And, I mean, you can just think of any environment where suddenly a lot is called upon us. But did you know that's the joyful norm of a follower of Jesus? We are privileged to sacrifice and lay down our lives for Him. It may not be required every moment. You may not be required to give your life in martyrdom. You're right. But but the point is, sacrifice is the calling of the Christian. It was the calling of your master. And we're to follow His example, which is why the last application, I think, will hopefully make you grin. I was going to say this in a much more didactic way, such as don't compare. But you would have written it down and not thought about it. So I'm going to just say it like I thought at first. If you're going to compare, because a lot of us struggle with this, we want to compare ourselves to people, don't we? And boy, the devil loves to get in there. And then that's what makes us quit. We realize, I'm just not as good as that person or, or, or she or him. And, and I just want to admit to you, I, this is a hard battle for all of us. I mean, just comparison. It kills, by the way, so you've got to avoid it. But I, just want to, I don't want to just give you somebody to act line, don't compare if you're going to compare, here's a much better way. Use the cross as the standard. You'll never be disappointed. You'll never be better than the cross, so you'll always have reason to keep going. I don't want to border on moralism. I'm not trying to use the cross as a long pole either. I'm just simply saying, when you find the devil tempting you to compare yourself to others, with his plan being that you find discouragement, and you quit and you don't obey, just say, you know, I'm not going to compare to Brad to wendy or to grant i think i'll compare my situation to christ and his cross oh man i've it's not near that bad and jesus made it all the way to the words it is finished you know what i'll keep on obeying i need to wrap this up quickly let me see if there's one or two questions any questions jill if his love is relentless, why does it seem so many fall away? Is his love for everybody or just the elect? There's a very good article in this week's small group curriculum that addresses this question. God's love is universal. All right? God loves the world. Amen. John 3:16, 1 John. Is there a a special we'll call it or a and a type of love for the ones that God has chosen from the foundation of the world? Of course. Do I understand how all of that works? No. But I would never err and say to you that God doesn't love the world. He does. He has a universal love for mankind. Which is why He gave His only begotten Son. Say it with me. That whoever believes in him, should not perish, but have everlasting life. Amen. I'd encourage you to check out our small group curriculum. I think it may be in the compass, or it might be in the online version of this week's notes. I'm not sure where that article appears, but it's a fantastic. In fact, Tanner, maybe we could just post the link to that article on our website, Facebook page. It's a fantastic article that addresses this very question. It's a beautiful article on just exactly how relentless God's love is. One more question? Who is the we in verse 4, and what is it that they were commanded? Let's answer this, and then we'll wrap things up and lead appropriately to communion. Verse 4, And we have confidence in the Lord about you. That'd be Paul and his team. They're often referred to in the New Testament as the brothers. There's a definite article in front of the word brothers. And so I tend to think Paul had like a cohort of people that he traveled with. Many of them went in front of Paul. They would be called his advanced team if he was in our culture. They would find places to stay, try to meet people, like accommodations and those kinds of things. But this would be Paul and his team. Of course, at times Timothy was on there, at times Barnabas was on there, Silas, various times. And it says here, they're going to do what we commanded you. I believe you look back in chapter 2, verse 13. It's the traditions, the things that God gave them in regards to the writing of Scripture. These non-negotiables from the Lord. You look down in verse 6, here the word is, command of chapter 3. We command you, brothers, again. So I would say to you, it's Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, in writing authoritative scripture, that he's saying this is what you need to obey. And so in their specific historical case, it would be the first and second epistle of the Thessalonians. Does that make sense? There's much instruction about the coming of the Lord, about how to work. We'll cover a lot of this next week in verses 6 through 18. In First Thessalonians, the instructions there. So they got these letters, and they're realizing these are authoritative commands from God. And Paul says, I want you to, to not forget those and do those. Okay, we'll do those. They're from God. So Paul is the we and his team. Paul is spe- uh, specifically inspired by the Holy Spirit to write Scripture. And the commandment is the Scriptures they were given in this case, especially these epistles. It's a great question. The goal being that they would obey immediately and in the future, let me just share with you one last, I think, window. Because our tendency is, even though we believe verses four and five, we can answer the questions. Am I the only guy here that thinks this is just hard sometimes to keep your mind on the right kind of motivation for our obedience? It's easy to go to the external aspects. Can someone just nod and say, We're with you, Todd? And it's, yeah, it's hard. We were talking about this at a staff meeting just a few weeks ago. We are really leaning into, like, how can we really encourage our volunteers more? How can we get more folks to volunteer? And, of course, we begin to talk about different ways. And, you know, we're normal people. Well, we should do this. We have this kind of checklist or maybe try this kind of incentive or this. And someone, in a flash of genius, (laughs) says, hey, guys, we can't mandate volunteerism. God has to fix the heart. I remember that moment. And what I felt was like, whew, I'm not called upon to think of some novel idea. Praise God, you know. And then I thought of this verse. Oh, yeah, we should pray for God to direct every one of your hearts to His love and Christ's example. Why? So that you would obey now and in the moment. And included in that would be serving your church. Let's just be frank. So this morning, I don't want to pass out a card, ask you where you'll volunteer. I don't want to ask you how many times you read your Bible or will you, you know, step up for this. I just want to ask you to bow your heads and do this. Can you think about God's love and Christ's example for a few moments? And can we ask God to direct our hearts there? The answer to that question is yes. Let's pray. Lord, it's true. Lord, it is so true. We cannot mandate volunteerism, service, however the word we want to use.